6640. 6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Jeremiah, chapters 6 through 8. They shall lay hold on bow and spear. They are cruel. They have no mercy. Their voice roareth like the seas. They ride upon horses. They set in array as men for war against thee, O daughter of, um, of Zion. Now, by the way, there's an enormous amount of information here, which is clear. If you're really in the, in the scholastic debate, are these the Scythians? And they're not for several reasons. The Scythians didn't invade. Some people maintain they, they did, but they didn't. But also... Uh, the this idea of using horses as cavalry, not drawing chariots. The Egyptians had done that for a long time. There's a lot of trade in chariots in Solomon's day and so forth. But the use of horses as cavalry is um, an innovation the Babylonians did do, and others obviously too. Um, the cruelty and so were the Babylonians is uh, pretty spectacular. The way they impaled their enemies on poles and and flayed them alive, and they, they did all kinds of things. They were known to be very aggressive. We see some glimpse on that when we see in Book of Daniel, we get to know Nebuchadnezzar, who was an absolute despot, probably more complete than anyone since. And when something didn't agree with him, it was off with his head and a dispossession of all his, all his relatives. I will tear your limb from him and make your houses a dunghill, he says. You remember that phrase in Daniel all the time? Um, and some of his practices subsequently, you know, the whole business of the, under the meads and so forth, the fiery furnace, burning people alive. These guys played rough. Verse 24, we have heard the report of it. Our hands grow feeble. Anguish hath taken hold of us in pain as of a woman in travail. Interesting phrase. Go not forth into the field, nor walk by the way, for the sword of the enemy and fear are on every side. O daughter of my people, gird thyself with sackcloth, wallow thyself in ashes, make thee mourning as for an only son. Most bitter lamentation for the spoiler shall suddenly come upon us. Now, if you're a mystic, you can find behind these words a message beyond that which Jeremiah had on his heart. He's dealing with his people and the anguish that's coming right on the horizon, i.e. an enemy that God is going to raise to power to be his instrument of judgment on the nation that has been so wantonly um, guilty of idolatry and rejection and so forth. But it's interesting as we go through this from the, you know, the, uh, the uh, hordes from the north in verse 22, the woman in travel in verse 24, and and um, and then this uh, mourning for an only son in verse 26. It wouldn't be hard for us if we are of a mystic alternative mind to see behind this some some very important prophetic typological themes. But that's at this stage probably a distraction. We'll just call your attention to it and keep moving. Verse 27. I have set thee for a tower and a fortress among my people. 
that thou mayest know and, and test their way. They are all grievous revolters, walking with slanders. They are bronze and iron, and they are all corruptors. The bellows are burned. The lead is consumed by the fire. The founder melteth in vain. The wicked are not plucked away. Reprobate silver shall men call them, because the Lord hath rejected them. Now, the imagery here in the last few verses is that of a refiner, where you heat things in the, the cruddy part, boils to the top, and you skim it off to get the metal pure. If you've ever been in a foundry or seen something like that, it's a very common occurrence, and that's the idiom that, first of all, most people in that society would have had an opportunity to, to observe a tradesman do that. And so he's speaking here, the whole idea of the concept of refinement. And they're reprobate silver in that sense that they're the part that was skimmed off and rejected, as opposed to the pure silver that would be used for for uh, for value. And uh, he's, he's indulging in that idiom, the refiner's fire, in a sense. They'll be put through the fire to be refined. And incidentally, in that message is a hope. Because you don't burn silver to burn it up. You burn silver to get rid of the impurities. You eat it and skim it and come up and skim it off. So yes, the reprobate silver is thrown away, but the good news is the process is not intended to be destructive, it's intended to be purifying. And, and, and strangely enough, in Jeremiah's dirge here, we're going to see, ironically enough, very important glimpses of hope. So that's a summary of chapter 6, which we didn't quite get to last time. That concludes sort of a section, because 7 through 10, the next sort of section we're going to jump into, is sometimes called the Temple Discourses. And uh, uh, you need to, and, and by the way, we're not sure exactly when this was, was uh, presented, but, we, but there's a lot of evidence that this was presented um, during the uh, reign of Jehoiakim, which, bear in mind, uh, Josiah was, uh, uh, was killed at Megiddo. The nation is shocked. Um, Jehoiaz was removed from office, who was followed, but only briefly for a few months, and then it imposed on them was Jehoiakim. Now, from Josiah, which had a religious revival of sorts, Jehoiakim instituted a reversal. It was under him that there's a whole religious reversal, and Canaanite idolatry was not only allowed, but encouraged. Um, now, uh, under Josiah, as part of the revival, it's an interesting thing that happens here. Under Josiah, part of his revival was to re-centralize worship in Jerusalem. To use the temple, and in the temple, in the storerooms, they find the Torah, namely the book of Deuteronomy, and that creates a big event. And again, the temple becomes, if you will, a center of worship. That's the good news. It's also the bad news, because the temple itself becomes like a talisman or a fetish. And that's what Jeremiah is going to attack. And it sounds peculiar until you get the background. Um, and in fact, it's believed by many scholars that chapter 7 on is actually his first, Jeremiah's first public discourse that has to do with the temple. To get a little more background on this, it's probably useful to look back at what I'm about to describe occurs in 2 Kings 18, for those of you who want to do, deal... Second, I won't get into it now by words, it'll take too long, but for those of you who want to double-check, remember Acts 17, 11, don't believe anything I tell you. So you want to check the Scripture yourself. But uh, 2 Kings, from 18 to 19, 
describes the delivery of Jerusalem in 701 B.C. under the reign of Hezekiah. Now, that's a bizarre episode. In fact, uh, as long as I bring it up, I'll really bring it up. Um, what you would like to do, I think, if you don't remember, would be dig into the tapes on um, Joshua chapter 10. When we take the long day of Joshua, which if my memory serves me correctly is Joshua 10, uh, we dealt at that time with the whole concept of the, the, the catastrophe theory of history and the computer models that have been built by these uh, Harvard and NASA scientists that have dealt with the, the recognition that the catastrophes in the Bible have a periodicity to them that links up with the orbit of the planet Mars. And that leads to a whole set of bizarre insights that may or may not be correct, but are certainly provocative. Clearly, though, something happened in 701 B.C. to cause all calendars on the Earth to change. There are at least 15 of them that I enumerated on that tape. I don't have those notes in front of me. Fortunately for you, I won't bore you with all that again. But the Hebrew, Chinese, Chaldean, Maya, you, know, you name it, all calendars of the Earth up till 701 B.C. seem to be quite effective with... Three, uh, with uh, 360-day years and uh, 12, 30-day months. And then roughly 701 B.C. onward, they all change. The Romans add four days or four and a quarter days to the calendar. Uh, uh, the, he the Hebrews add a month every three years now and then. Uh, everybody has these weird ways of doing things. And the rabbis all get upset with Hezekiah because of the way he corrected the calendar. What's fascinating in those ancient debates is no one explains, well, why did he have to change the calendar in the first place? And scientists now believe that there was a change in the orbit of the planet Earth, and incidentally the planet Mars at that time, that gave rise to some very interesting disturbances that happens to be a 104-year period anniversary of the long day of Joshua. And if you're interested in that hypothesis, it's certainly not proven, but it's interesting, now you can dig all that out on the, on the Joshua tapes about chapter 10. But the reason I bring this up is that in 701 B.C., Jerusalem is besieged by the, by the Assyrian army the Assyrians, and they're camped, and they, there's some reason to believe, if the hypothesis that uh, uh, Patton, Stenhauer, and those people advance is correct, that the ancients knew that something happened every 100, I think it's 104 years, and were hoping that the, the tremors would bring the walls down. In lieu of that, some bolides wipe out the Assyrian army, and um, either that or it might be just simply an angel that walks through their camp, uh, slays 185,000 of them. And I've always been impressed with that passage because it tells me you don't mess around with angels. But what comes out of that that's spiritually a reward for the reform under Hezekiah? Hezekiah's leading a reform. The Assyrians that are camped around them get wiped out one night, be it by interplanetary mechanisms or the angel, you know, however, whatever mechanically happened. Clearly God did it through his agencies. Um, they're delivered. Now that turns out to lead to an exciting revival. And that causes the temple to be extolled. Now, you say, gee, that sounds great. They would like the temple extolled. Jeremiah is attacking that view. You'll see. And you may wonder, what's, he, what's, what's Jeremiah up to? What Jeremiah is concerned about is that the temple of God has been a substitute for the God of the temple that the temple itself has become a fetish or a talisman. And by the way, that risk is before us all. 
a lot of people wonder why I don't get on these kicks like the Shroud of Turin or what have you. And I could list several, you know, Papadarum society has always got something like that brewing. And the risk is, it's not whether it's legitimate or not, isn't the issue. The issue is, is that that can easily get in the way of true worship. I think that God has preserved us from the Ark of Noah until an appointed time, yet future, because it itself would become a talisman or a fetish or something impediment. And you and I run that risk all the time. We, whatever subject or interest or hobby horse you might have that may sound biblical or ecclesiastical, that gets becomes a substitute for our passion, our worship, our concern for the God of the universe, not his implements. And that's exactly what happens here in chapter 7, and it's not distant from the memory of the, you know, the whole thing in Hezekiah. And the view is, the analogy is, they remember how Hezekiah was delivered. Here the Syrians were kept around, are going to wipe us out. And kavoom, in one night the Assyrians are wiped out. We're not sweating old Nebuchadnezzar and his gang. They missed the point. The reason they were wiped out is because under Hezekiah there was a return, a revival, a return to the ways of God. And God spared them. God did it. Jeremiah is pointing out, hey, you turkeys, that ain't the way it's going to be here. You're going to get wiped out because you're disobedient. And they wouldn't listen. In fact, this speech not only doesn't impress them, in fact, it does impress them. They hate him for the rest of his life from this and, and the subsequent chapters, you'll see. Well, let's jump in. Uh, chapter 7, verse 1, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate at the Lord's house. Now, by the way, there's debate here. Some people think it was the Eastern Gate, the thing we sometimes call the Golden Gate, might have been. Some people think it might have been that the, that term can be used of the, the space between the inner and outer court of the temple. So scholars have slightly different views, but the issue is, is still the same. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all ye of Judah, that enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. What's implied, of course, and conversely, as you'll see shortly. In other words, if you don't amend your ways, you're not going to dwell in this place. Verse 4, trust not in lying words, saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. Yep, Jeremiah's tone here. You know? They're using it as a, a figure of speech or as a talisman or as some kind of protection, you know. This whole thrust reminds me of something else that's you and I, it's worth remembering. Um, many, many years ago, I can't recall the exact circumstances, but somebody came running into the pastor's office all upset because the kids in the sanctuary were chewing gum. And the rebuttal was, no, 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 the sanctuaries are chewing gum. Who is the temple of God? It ain't the building. It's you and I. So there's a lot, there's a lot that could be developed from that, but we'll stay here. Verse 5. For ye, for if ye thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if ye thoroughly execute justice between a man and his neighbor, if you oppress not the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, and shed not innocent blood in this place, neither walk after other gods to your arm. 
Then will I cause you to dwell in this place and in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Emphasis. It was a conditional grant. When they don't obey, they're in exile. That's exactly what he did. Now, by the way, if you dissect the passage we just read, there are four prescriptions that God puts forth through Jeremiah. One is a desire for justice. It's reminiscent of that passage in, um, is it Micah? What does the Lord, 6 8, I'm told, right on. 6 8. What did the Lord require of thee to do justly? Love mercy? Walk humbly before thy God. Same kind of passage. First prescription by Jeremiah love justice. Second one, concern for the fatherless, the aliens, the widows. Third one, the avoidance of judicial murders. Parenthesis abortion? Question mark. Close parenthesis. And fourth, abandon idolatry. Neither walk after other gods to your harm. Then will I cause you to dwell in this place in the land that I gave your fathers forever and ever. Behold ye trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will ye steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods whom ye know not? and come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name. And you say, we delivered to you all these abominations. We're going to discover, by the way, if not here, when one of these passages, exactly, you'll discover it. They not only worshipped idols, some of the idols were in the temple. If you can imagine that. Now, verse 11 is a provocative verse because none other than our Lord Jesus Christ combined this verse with Isaiah 56 to make an exclamation, in the very house of God. The occasion was a cord whip, and he went through the temple and cleansed it of the money changers and so forth. And he said to them, remember? If you don't remember, you can find it in Matthew 21, 13, Mark 11, 17, or Luke 19, 46, right? He quotes Isaiah 56, 7, which advocates that it be the house of prayer, that phrase is used. And here in Jeremiah 7.11, it speaks of, here God says, Is this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, even I have seen it, saith the Lord. It isn't very long when the Lord himself goes through the house and quotes this and Isaiah together. My house is a house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And by the way, that's another thing I'll just suggest lightly so we don't hammer it to death, but you can mull it over. I'm going to suggest softly the possibility that at least in one sense, Jeremiah becomes a type of Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, we find the Lord weeping over Jerusalem. And I see... Jeremiah as an expansion of that very incident. I have no idea how long the Lord was up on the Mount of Olives weeping over Jerusalem. It's recorded quite modestly in the Gospels, but it is recorded. Jeremiah was in the same role, doing what? Weeping over Jerusalem and forecasting its destruction. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ does. So I submit that to you to, for some thought and um, keep moving here. Does this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, even I have seen it, saith the Lord. 
But go now unto my place which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did to it for the wickedness of the people of Israel. Now, this whole issue, we need to really put in perspective what Shiloh was. We use that phrase glibly. We often use it with Genesis 49.10 as a messianic phrase, and it is there. But the word the Shiloh itself was a location about roughly 18 miles north of Jerusalem. And it's biblically uh, relevant in that it was the place that the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant stood after the conquest of Canaan. They left, you know, they wandered in the wilderness 40 years, and they had this whole tabernacle thing when they came down from the when when Moses came down from the Mount Sinai, he had not only the Ten Commandments, but the specific specifications for this strange structure called the tabernacle and all its seven pieces of furniture, including the Ark of the Covenant, in which was placed the tables of stone, the pot of manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and so on. This Ark of the Covenant is um, a very key element in their worship and their in the Lord's identity with them and so forth throughout their wanderings. But what happens after Joshua, after those 40 years, and they conquer the Canaan? They still have the tabernacle. Where is it? It's at Shiloh, roughly 18 miles north of Jerusalem. You can find all this in Joshua 18 and 22, Judges 21 and 1 Samuel 1. There's a couple of places where it shows up. And it's the abode of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, why is Jeremiah bringing that up? Because at Shiloh is where Israel, the northern kingdom, falls into idolatry. Okay? And as a result of that, the Philistines at the Battle of Ebenezer captured the Ark of the Covenant. And subsequently, uh, roughly about 1050 B.C., Shiloh is destroyed by the Philistines. In fact, those of you that are chasing this down can read Psalm 78, which deals a lot with this. I won't take the time tonight. But Shiloh is to the period of, say, the judges, what Jerusalem is to the period of the kings. That's the analogy. Prior to the monarchy, in the time of Joshua and judges and so forth, time of the judges, post-conquest post of the land, Shiloh was the place the tabernacle stood. Shiloh was the center of worship. And it was at Shiloh that idolatry surfaces. And that's when God judges them, in that case, using the Philistines. Shiloh is to the period of the judges what Jerusalem is to the period of the kings. And that's the analogy. A very vivid analogy, especially to Jeremiah, who was of the family of Eli. And, and would have that it would all have very special meanings. So God is saying through Jeremiah... But go now unto my place which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did to it for the weakness of the people Israel. The word Israel here is used denotatively, that is the northern kingdom. They're gone. A hundred years ago, they were wiped out. Why? Because of idolatry. And using Shiloh as, you know, as uh, idiomatically the, the, the comparison here. And now because, verse 15, And now because ye have done all these works, saith the Lord, and I spoke unto you, rising up early and speaking, and ye heard not. And I called you, but ye answered not. Therefore will I do, this, do unto this house, which is called by my name, in which ye trust, and unto the place which I gave to you and to your fathers, as I have done to Shiloh. This is a real blow for those Jews because to them the temple was their salvation, not the God of the temple. And what he's pointing out, he says, I wiped out Shiloh where the tabernacle stood, and I'm ready to wipe out the temple 
for your sins. The temple is nothing but a place. It's the God of the temple that they should be paying attention to. Verse 15, And I will cast you out of my sight, as I have cast out all your brethren, even the whole seed of Ephraim. And here Ephraim isn't the tribe, of the, the, the one tribe of the twelve. It's used idiomatically for the northern group. It frequently isn't in the scripture. It's used connotatively. Now, interesting it is how important it is for us to remember wherein our trust should lie. Our trust does not lie in navies or air forces or economies, economics, I mean. It lies in the God of this country, or was the God, or the God that at least you know, we, we acknowledged in the roots of this country. And so that's why, as I read Jeremiah, I get awfully nervous because what he says to them in terms of having forgotten their roots and have misunderstood their prosperity as to from whence it come, came. I think we have two. We have two. We're in the same boat. But anyway, moving on. Verse 16. This is a wild one. This is a wild verse. Listen carefully. Therefore, God says, pray not for this people, neither lift up cried nor prayer for them, neither make intercession to me, for I will not hear thee. Boy. Boy. You know, we stumble from time to time and whatever, and we may even, you know, fall back. But boy, the one thing that gives us comfort, you and I, is that we have an intercessor, whoever liveth to make intercession for us, right by the throne of God. Praise God for that. Here, and I don't want you to infer that verse 16 is permanent. It's a, it's a, it's a temporal situation because God is indeed going to hear prayers and does hear prayers for Israel and so forth. I'm just saying here in this, but he, that's the ultimate indictment. Hey, don't pester me. I'm not going to hear you. Pray not, you know, pray not for this people, he tells Jeremiah. Hey, that's heavy. It's not surprising to see the priests get rattled. It's too bad they didn't get rattled enough to repent. Instead, they just get rattled at Jeremiah and hate him for the rest of their lives. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jeremiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store and search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.